today's reading is Luke 22, 24 through 30. Brad, I'm sorry. Hold the phone. I know, but I need glasses. <laughs> A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. My name is Brett Sweet. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship Central. It is such a privilege to open God's Word with you and hear uh, what God is going to speak to us this day. We exist here, this church, to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. So we want God to get the glory. Quick side note, I'm, I'm going to try to get better at this. I want to point out some things in our bookstore and library um, just to encourage you to make use of these resources. We have a number of these pamphlets from CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, on all kinds of things. Uh, addiction, relationships. Uh, this one is one you all need to read. It's called How to Love Difficult People. You need to read that because you're in a church with me, and I can be a very difficult person. Uh, so let's, uh, let's help one another, counsel one another, Encourage one another through the resources God gives the church. Now, let me pray. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness to us. We're grateful that you perfectly love difficult people. And we see that in the pages and verses before us. We see the disciples acting like us. And Lord, we don't deserve your love. And we would have no reason to believe you loved us if it weren't for Jesus. And so we're grateful that you prove your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we pray, Lord, this morning that you would make Jesus real to us, living, alive, present in a powerful way that transforms us from the inside out. And I cannot do it. You must do it. So do it for the sake of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Local news organizations have lately been reaching out to civic organizations, including churches, asking them to basically pull out somebody from their organization who deserves credit, 
deserves a little bit of fame, a little bit of praise for their greatness, for being good and what they've done, be held out as an example. And maybe, just maybe, they reached out to me to choose someone from this building, this room right now, to point out who's really great, who really deserves the credit, who really deserves some time and some fame. Now, if that's true, how does that make you feel? Are some of you thinking right now, I hope he picks me? Are some of you thinking to yourselves, well, I know he won't pick me. So you feel sorry for yourself. I've felt that way, both, both ways. There is something inside us that desires greatness, that desires praise, that desires high regard. And most of our desires, though, are off. There's something wrong with them. So it's like you look out at those, you, you drive on the highway around here, the country roads, and you see a, a pretty nice car in the field. It looks pretty good. But then you recognize there's no engine inside it. There's something wrong on the inside. That's really what's wrong with us. There's something wrong with us on the inside that needs to be rebuilt. And that's what Jesus is kind of pointing us to this morning. He's trying to rebuild us into true greatness. What is true greatness? And so our, my main point today is to be rebuilt into true greatness. Be rebuilt. That's passive voice. You cannot do this yourself. Be rebuilt into true greatness. What does it mean to be truly great? Do you know? Well, this week we're going to look at what Jesus shows us to be true greatness. And we're going to look at three things Typical sermon here, three things. Why we need true greatness, what's our need? Why we need true greatness, then the one who brings true greatness, which of course, as every Christian knows, the answer is Jesus, the one who brings true greatness, and then we'll look at the future for those with true greatness. What's the future for those with true greatness? So true greatness, why we need it, the one who brings it, and the future for those who have it. Let's look at the first aspect of that. Why we need true greatness. Why do we need it? There's two reasons Jesus gives. Gives us two reasons why we need true greatness. Let's look at reason number one. We, we need true greatness because we're preoccupied. We're preoccupied with false greatness. We're preoccupied with false greatness. We think we know what greatness is, but we don't. Let's read verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here we are, if we remember our context here, this is Jesus on the night he's being betrayed, he's going to die, and here's what's on the disciples' mind. They are acting horribly. They're acting selfishly. They are preoccupied with themselves. That's what they're thinking about, their reputations. What's going on for us? How, how do others think about us? How do you think about me? We see them acting, it seems, like us. So how would you feel if I did something that totally ruined something for you? You've had this big work project, been working on it for months, and I come and delete the whole file. So now, now, you, now on Monday, tomorrow, you show up and you have nothing to present. You've got nothing. 
I've just destroyed your reputation. You were relying on that. What is your boss going to think about you? Or what if someone said, you know, actually, King Charles, he normally doesn't come to Spokane, but he's coming over for dinner this week. I really want that recipe of yours. I'm going to tell him that it's your recipe. And then they ruin it. It tastes awful for royalty. You say like, but this came from this person over here. Make sure you write them a letter, your highness. How would you feel? What if there's three minutes before your speech, you've got your nicest white clothes and now you've spilled coffee over it? Or copies, I don't know. Now see, this, those sorts of things bother us because we want to be regarded as great. We want others to think that we're great. That's what we think matters. So here's the test for you. Here's a test. Would you love to be regarded as the greatest, fill in the blank, Christian or worker or parent or athlete or volunteer or driver or musician or student or home renovator or whatever, even if you know you aren't? Would you, would you like that? People know, like, this guy's the greatest, this lady's the greatest, but deep down you know you're not. Would you like to be regarded that way? All or most of Jesus' disciples here wanted to be regarded as the greatest. It was so important to them that there's actually a dispute. They're fighting about it. This is like elementary school boys. We are like the disciples are preoccupied with greatness. No, I'm, I'm better at basketball than you are. Fourth grade Brett Sweet. I'm better. I'm great. We're preoccupied with false greatness. That's reason number one why we need true greatness. We need to re- be rebuilt into true greatness. We need true greatness. Reason number one was we're preoccupied with false greatness. Now, reason number two, we see examples of false greatness. That's the second reason. We see examples of false greatness. We look around us and they're all usually false. Look at verse 25. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So there have been some really awful and brutal leaders throughout history, and there are some that exist right now. Many of them would hide their brutality. This continues, especially in totalitarian uh, realms, where you've got people doing horrendous things to people, but they suppress that information. And then what they do is they build like statues to themselves, and they give themselves titles like benefactor. Look at all the good I'm doing for this region, this city. This country, look at all the good I give. But then you recognize they want this title, something like, I'm a good leader. I'm a benefactor. Look at all the good I give. But they want to use it, ultimately, for their own abuse of authority. They're really after after their own reputations. And so even when they do good things, it's for false greatness. These are the examples the disciples seem to have had. Jesus says, look out there. Kings of the Gentiles, this is how they act. 
This is the examples that we usually have. When I was going through cancer treatment the first time, everybody was wearing these yellow little wristbands around their wrist that said, live strong. Because Lance Armstrong was raising this money for cancer. Lance Armstrong. Here he was in the almost completing seven straight Tour de France victories. Defeated cancer. Now he's raising, he's raising millions and millions of dollars for cancer. What, what a hero. And then we find out, no, actually he was cheating the whole time. Doping. Or we think, let's, get, let's, let's turn our eyes on the church. We think about Mark Driscoll. Here's a guy challenging so many of us. Building a thriving, doctrinally sound church in Seattle. In Seattle! Doing things that are encouraging to so many of us. And then the news comes out. Actually, he's treated people around him awfully. Abused his authority all the time. Rejected church discipline when they tried to help him. He's probably not qualified to be a pastor until that's resolved. Or Ravi Zacharias, gifted storyteller, gifted apologist, seems to be this winsome uh, advocate for the Christian faith, dies of cancer, seemingly completes his victory successfully, seemed to be a man of principle. And then the news breaks, woman after woman, story after story. Adultery, abuse, deception. But they seemed great. They all seemed great. People using this false greatness for their own purposes. If there are interactions in hell between one person or another, I think that this is one reason why hell will be horrible. Because it will be people with no restraint from God, constantly using other people for their own purposes, trying to be great, trying to harm one another, abusing one another, Satan and demons wanting to do the same thing, and God pouring out wrath on all those who are outside of Christ, being treated exactly as they treated others. They tried to assert and control and harm others in their seeking of greatness, So God now has to treat them with justice. He asserts and controls them, and not in a manner of blessing, but in a manner of perfect justice and punishment. This is why we need true greatness. We need true greatness. We we see people preoccupied with false greatness. We see examples of it all around us, and we follow them. But here's the thing. Why are we always wanting to be great? What is the reason for that? Well, the influential philosopher from the 1800s, Friedrich Nietzsche, he says there's this irrational force inside every person called the will to power. There's something inside you, you just want power, you, and it's unavoidable, it's, made, it's, it's who you are. We want greatness and status, authority. We want the world really to revolve around us. And he's onto something, actually. But the Bible calls that pride. So it's a sin. And Nietzsche would be unhappy for me to legitimize the Bible. He hated Christianity. He hated Jesus. But why? 
why does everyone want to be great? It could be pride, but there's another factor. We're made in God's image. The image of God is at work in us. God built us and bestowed on us a title, a great title saying, one like me, one made in my image. Great. A woman in my image, a man in my image, the greatest of all creations. And we didn't need to be rebuilt at this time because we'd been perfectly built. We already were great in the proper sense. God gives us his jobs, as vice regents. We're kind of like royalty overseeing creation. And so what God intends is for other humans and trees and rocks and mushrooms and wolves and whales and whatever else to look at human beings in some way and say, there's something like God in that being. And I want to do what I'm made to do for God's sake because of that person. There's greatness. See, we're wrapped up. We're actually meant to be great. So kids, do your schoolwork with excellence. Get all the gold stars. Get them all. Get stickers on all your papers. Do it. Athletes, work hard, train your body so that your team actually gets gold. Like, try to win. Sometimes the Christians are like, oh, I don't know if I should win. Like, no, push yourself, be good. Parents, model godly ambition. Try to do great things, but do it under God's rule and for His purposes as a model. Writers, maybe you want to write someday. Do it. Write. Write until there's a book published with your name on it that can be sold and other people can read. Edit. Publish it. Do it all. Men, start companies. Don't be afraid to be visible in front of others. Climb corporate ladders. Elderly folks, I'll let you decide if you're elderly or not. You're probably wiser than us. You shouldn't be too ashamed to share things you've learned. Speak to us sometimes. God's made us to be great. We need true greatness, though. And all of these tasks, goals, things, though, could be false greatness. So we need to be rebuilt. We need to be rebuilt into true greatness. We need true greatness now, second we need to look at the one who brings true greatness. Who's the one who brings true greatness? Now, again, that to be rebuilt language is passive voice. I'm not saying rebuild yourself. To be rebuilt is to have someone else show us what true greatness is and then make us that way. And we need Jesus to do that. He brings true greatness. He models it for us. And he does it in a couple ways in this text. So way number one, Jesus rebuilds us through correction. Jesus rebuilds people into true greatness through correction. They've got to be corrected. Let's read verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. So Jesus is the one who brings true greatness. He comes, and Jesus corrects the disciples here, and he corrects us. 
He says, what you think greatness is, you don't be like those people. You see those examples out there, don't be like them. That saves many people's lives, knowing what not to do. So we need people to correct us. We can't get better unless we're corrected. So Jesus wants us to pursue true greatness, and he does it first by correcting us. He's like looking at those cars that are coming off the assembly line saying, oh, those axles aren't quite right. Or if they don't get that timing belt fixed just right, there's going to be problems. We need to fix that before we let him go. Don't be like them, Jesus is saying. Disciples, don't be like those people out there that you think are great. Jesus corrects us. He says, if you're going to be great, here's who I want you to be like. The little child. The little one. You know the one that needs to always always be dragged around by the bigger sibling? The one who knows she's a child? Who knows she needs other people to do things for her? The one who knows that when they're told to do something by the authority figure that's a legitimate authority figure, just says, okay, and does it. Doesn't fight, doesn't resist. Just be like that. That's true greatness. So that's how you lead. You lead by serving, Jesus seems to say. And as one commentator says, I think this is Daniel Garland, should have written it down. Greatness is not determined by how many serve you, but how you serve others. So the church better be a place where we recognize what true greatness is. The really great people may not be the ones you think. And the people in leadership better be great in this way, by serving, not just knowing all the answers or looking really good or getting to take, get a bunch of attention on Sunday morning. It better be about serving. Jesus corrects us here. Jesus rebuilds us toward true greatness through correction. That's the first way. And now the second way is we learn to the one who, from the one who brings true greatness. Way number two, Jesus rebuilds us through his example. Jesus rebuilds us through his example. He models this for us. This is what we need. Let's read verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So here they all are. The Last Supper. They didn't know that da Vinci was going to make some famous painting bunch of white guys that weren't white sitting around one side of a table. They didn't know they were going to be famous in this way. But Jesus tells us the story. And he tells it through the Gospel of John. He says, you know, John says that when this night comes and all these people walk in with dirty feet, nobody no one, not one of these 12 disciples disputing about how great they are, would wash people's feet. So Jesus does. Jesus does that. He served. They were reclining at the table. He served. This is true greatness, serving. This is how you become great. And Jesus is the prime example of this. This is how he rebuilds us. We look at his example. 
But there's really a couple ways we can go astray here. We can go astray by being irreligious. We can start to think about true greatness. And what we start to think about when we're irreligious, when we don't think about God, when we don't feel any need to perform for anybody else, is we demand other people serve us. So we see speed limits, but we say, oh, the police don't know better than me. I'm in a hurry here. I'm late for work. If they pull me over, really, they need to get their act together. Or, you know what? She's my spouse, so she should do the dishes. And doggone it, she better have energy tonight when it's time for bed. She serves me, right? So what the irreligious person might say. We talk about self-care. When we say sorry, we add not sorry. We think we're all gonna, we're gonna all follow whatever we want. We'll let other people serve us. And you know what? We've all gone astray that way. All of us. And Jesus rebukes that, demanding other people serve us. And history has proven him right. People behave that way. It's disastrous. When you seek greatness that way, demanding other people serve you, you manipulate them. You strive after titles. Jesus needs to correct us. Otherwise, we'll destroy ourselves. But there's another way we go astray pursuing true greatness, and that's the religious route. We hear Jesus say that, and what we do is we build a religion. We say, well, I'm just going to serve a whole bunch. That's how I'm going to be great. I'm going to make a ta- list of tasks to do, and we're going to please some little God out there. It's probably kind of like Jesus, but maybe not quite. So we do things like we buy gifts for our children or grandchildren. And then when they open them, we don't actually really care if what we gave them is good for them or if they really like it, so long as they regard us as really good gift givers. Pay attention to us. And if it's maybe not so so important, we just spend our whole time apologizing, saying, oh, I wish I could have done more. Because we're consumed with what people think about us, our reputations. We show up at church and we think, you know, I serve on the music team, I serve on the greeting team, serve on the coffee team. Uh, Whenever there's a mistake with the communion team, I go and make sure I volunteer to help them out, show up for every work day. Uh, they, They really couldn't make it without me. Super important. I think we use our service to kind of manipulate people. And we really hope everybody notices, especially the pastors. We hear Jesus' words here about serving, and we hope that we can use them in a way to gain influence and power. We're doing so much for Jesus. But here's the issue for the religious. You cannot be a Christian if you think you're the greatest servant. You can't be. It's not possible. To be a Christian, you have to let Jesus serve you. Jesus stripped himself of his clothes to wash the disciples' feet. He lived like their slave. But he had still more serving to do if we keep reading Luke's gospel. He would willingly allow himself to be betrayed by one of the men at this table. This is coming in the next chapter. He allows himself to be falsely convicted, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be paraded, 
through the streets naked so he could be uh, humiliated. He's serving when he's doing that. And he goes to the cross and he suffers not just human pain, not just physical pain. He experienced the full wrath of God in the place of everyone who had put their faith in Jesus. He's serving. He served us. He did that for us. He didn't have to do it for himself, and he didn't do it just as an example. He did it as our substitute. So if you're religious, you can't serve enough. You can't. You cannot be the greatest by doing enough serving. You have to let someone be greater than you. You have to let him serve you. He must be regarded as the greatest. And you have to humble yourself before him. But if you're irreligious, Jesus has got to serve you as well. See, Jesus, not only did he go to the cross, he rose from the dead. There's resurrection power. And that power will actually go to work in your heart when you stare at Jesus long enough and God opens your heart. He'll give you a new heart. And you'll recognize, holy smokes, I've, I've been living for myself. And here's someone who is living for others, for God's glory and the good of others. And that changes you. That resurrection power comes from the Holy Spirit, gives you new life. And you recognize you want to be like that person. You're willing to deny yourself. You're willing to give up your position. So it's you doing the dishes. It's you volunteering on your day off. It's you helping your siblings clean up their mess kids, even though you didn't make it. And you begin to realize you're always, even as you crucify your selfish desires, you begin to realize that you're always being served more by Jesus than the serving you're doing for Him. That's what you realize. That's the gospel. And you grasp these by believing, by gazing at Jesus trusting him, turning away from yourself, whether it's your religious desires, your irreligious desires, and letting Jesus serve you, do all the work. That's how we're rebuilt. We're rebuilt from the inside out. And that's how you become great. You stare at Jesus and he changes you. And this transforms everything. So the game's on the line now. And the coach calls timeout, and you don't care so much about being regarded as great. So you say, coach, you know, game's on the line. Mikey's the better basketball player, football player, runner than me, whatever. Maybe you should sub me out and put him in so the team can win. Coach says, no, well, you know, we, we have a lot of confidence in Mikey, but right now, it's you. It's you. We need you in the game. And so you say, okay, you know, I want to I serve the people around me. And if, even if that means I make a fool of myself and I lose my reputation, this is what I'm trusting, that the coach knows what's best. And I'm going to trust that Jesus accepts me, whether I'm successful or not. Or you get the promotion. And instead of just saying, now everything's going to go the way I want it to go, you talk to the people around you and you listen to them. And you learn from them and you try to serve them so they're successful. 
even though maybe the job will look a little different than you wanted. Parents serving children, children serving parents, husbands serving by leading their families. Be rebuilt into true greatness. You cannot rebuild yourself. We've looked at the need for true greatness. We see the one who brings true greatness. And now quickly, the future. The future for those with true greatness. Those who have true greatness have a future. Let's look at it. This is incredibly amazing when you read this passage. It's, it's, it's I mean, just remarkable that Jesus would say these things. And we see what happens for those who are rebuilt into true greatness. Let's read verses 28 and 29. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom. See, we all want titles. We all want position. We all want status. But the people who give us titles and status and positions, they come and go. So we think, that person actually, you know, that lives down the street, he actually was on the cabinet for President Bush's administration. Because like, President Bush, he made plenty of mistakes, didn't he? Maybe this was just one of them, that guy. Nothing great. That guy doesn't have his cabinet position anymore. Or, you know, President Obama gave him this award. President Obama. What difference does he make? His time has come and gone. Jesus looks at his disciples in all their bickering, all their pride and worldliness, totally missing the point that Jesus is going to die. And he thinks about how they have stuck with him. They just stuck with him. He talked about, you know, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all kinds of people walked away. Didn't really understand he was saying, but these guys stuck with him. The, the religious leaders, they would give him the side eye. But these guys stuck with him. They heard the gossip, the lies. And Jesus says, you know what? You stuck with me. You actually really haven't earned it. Because actually you're going to abandon me in the next, like later tonight. So I'm going to give you something. You haven't earned it. I'm just going to give it to you. It's going to come from me. And here's the thing, I'm eternal. So Bush, Obama, they come and go. Your status will rise or fall. But if I give you something and I'm eternal, you get that status forever. And they give you something that will last. All those other so-called greatness, that's all fleeting. But today's, when today's heroes are tomorrow's villains. But Jesus, he says, going to give you something that lasts forever. Some of you are wanting so badly to have a status or a title. You want to be called great by the right person. You want, to, you want someone, that one person to say, husband or wife or general or mother or manager or CEO or millionaire or 4.0 student or popular one, but those can be lost and can be taken away. When Jesus rebuilds us into true greatness, there's status from all-powerful God that latches onto you and stays there, and you don't lose it, so it's secure, so you don't need to be afraid. 
That's good news. And it comes from an unchanging one because he's perfect. So the opinions of others then don't matter so much. So they call you a bigot, even though you're really just trying to say what Jesus has said. Or they call you dumb. Or they call you backwards. They call you a failure. Those are gone. Because if you have a future with true greatness, you're in Christ. You have a status that can't be taken away. That's blessing number one. That's what the greatest are given. That's what Jesus, the greatest of all, will give. A new status. That's your future with true greatness. Now let's look at blessing number two of this. Blessing number two, and this is actually the big one. You get fellowship with the greatest. Fellowship with the greatest. Let's read verse 30. Talking about assigning kingdoms, and it says, That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, the meaning of these verses is a little bit debated, the exact meaning. How much of this is in this life? Is it because the disciples now are going to be reaching out to the 12 tribes of Israel? Is it in the kingdom to come where somehow the the disciples are involved in judging uh, the tribes of Israel? How does this work? Uh, Nobody knows exactly for sure, but it seems like there's some sort of continuity here. that That these 12 disciples are somehow connected to Old Testament Israel, like they're one people. They're together. It seems like it's the same stream. Maybe they have a special status in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't know exactly. But here's what's decisively clear. Luke always uses meals to emphasize fellowship. If you're together, there's fellowship. That doesn't mean that he doesn't sometimes call people to repentance at the meal. But he's saying, I'm willing to interact with you and be with you. That's the main idea. If you're truly great, here's the amazing thing. You, have, you will have an eternity of the closest relationship with the greatest person who's ever lived, and it never ends. The holidays are coming, and we're going to sit around at the table, and we're going to look around, and we're going to recognize people are missing. Saw, couldn't fall asleep last night, got on Facebook. My childhood best friend's dad died. Didn't know that. So Ben is facing his first holiday without his dad. Gone. Fellowship broken. And we look around, and sometimes we don't even know who's missing. We recognize something's not quite right. In heaven, we'll be with Jesus. We'll fellowship with him. I'm, I don't know that necessarily we will have kingdoms like the disciples might. Maybe there's, there, we will have some responsibilities. I know that. But we will have fellowship with Jesus. Always, every day, better than the one before. But only going to get better. And it never ends. Fellowship, being known, never being afraid of losing this person because he can't die. He's died once for all, defeated death, can't die again, and he'll have raised us from the dead. So we can't die again. Always together. Deep relationship, fellowship. That's the future. 
for those who know the truly great one and pursue true greatness. One day I was driving down Nevada Street on my way to work here, uh, and there's a little boy walking down uh, Nevada, and he was headed to Longfellow Elementary. He looked like a friendly little fellow, had, some, um, had a cool hat on, looked, seemed well-fed, and he, had some, he was wearing this big sweatshirt. And I noticed a sweatshirt, I'm not supposed to wear this one in public, it's too big, but anyhow, his sweatshirt was big like mine. And it hung way down. And the sleeves were too long. It was like his hands only went like eight inches short of the sleeves. So as he walked, they kind of flapped in the breeze. And I thought to myself, you know, this, this guy, uh, he looks like a friendly little kid. Then I thought to myself, you know, I bet you I know why they, that sweatshirt is that big. Because whoever loved him, bought that for him, figures he's going to grow into that. Time will come where it'll fit. See, when we believe the gospel, when we attach ourselves to Jesus, the greatest, he gives us a status, justification. We're declared righteous because Jesus clothes us, in a sense, in his sweatshirt of righteousness. So when God looks at us, he says, righteous, look how perfect this person is because all I see is Jesus's goods on the outside. He must be perfect. But inside, we know we don't quite fit yet. So why does God clothe us in Jesus' righteousness? There's all kinds of reasons, but I think one of them is this. He wants our sanctification, our, our holiness, to catch up with the clothes we're wearing. We never really will until Jesus returns, until we see Jesus face to face. But he wants us to grow into our justification too. Not trying to earn it. We've already got it. And one of the ways we do that is by pursuing true greatness. Try to be truly great. Do that by looking at Jesus, serving like Jesus, letting him serve us. And slowly but surely, we grow into the true greatness we see in these verses right here. And that should give us hope. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful that you bestow a status on us, and we confess that we often are preoccupied with false greatness, and we see the examples all around us, and sometimes we've been those bad examples. So we rejoice that we have been served by Jesus and are constantly being served as he intercedes and prays for us, even at this moment. So Lord, would you help us to be humble people? Pursue true greatness by serving others, by taking the lowest place, by doing it joyfully with our only motives to draw fame and attention to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do every...